morning. Please open your Bibles to the 24th chapter of Luke. You'll find the, the notes in the bulletin this morning. And this morning we'll begin to look at um, the Great Commission in Luke's Gospel. Really the culmination of the Messiah's work, the beginning of the church's mission and charter, and um, the completion of Luke's gospel, really. So I'd like to begin by reading Luke 24, 44 to 49. A word of prayer and we will begin. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Oh, Lord God, as we study this passage, um, help us to see the glory of Christ. Help us to see the mission of the church, the fulfillment of scriptures, uh, the the major story that runs through all the smaller stories. Um, Help us to see that in your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The reason this passage and the end of Matthew's gospel are often called the Great Commission is here is where we see the Lord commission the apostles with their mission of spreading the good news of the gospel to all nations. Um, So this and the final chapter of Matthew are in parallel in that instance. Here we see the, the ground for what occurs in Acts. In fact, in one sense, Acts is a continuation of this. If you keep your finger here and turn to Acts chapter 1, you'll see how Luke connects his gospel with Acts. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles whom he had chosen. And so Luke then is seen as what Jesus began to do, and the implication is the book of Acts is what Jesus is continuing to do, and I would argue he's continuing to act through the commissioning and instruction of his apostles, through the church, acting on his behalf as his body carrying out his will on earth. So Jesus is still active and present in Acts as the church carries out their commission. So this passage, these few verses then, are that ground and charter for the church began doing 2,000 years ago and must continue doing to this very day. We're going to look at it in three points. There's really, I think, a fourth point in here. We may not even get through our three this morning. But first, we're going to look at fulfillment. Fulfillment. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, the first thing we need to note is the timing, the timing. And the blank here is we do not know when exactly this took place. Now, the ESV somewhat unhelpfully has 
Verse 44 begin with then. But in the Greek, it's simply an and. And he said to them, no necessary signifier of time. And the reason I point that out is, as we, as, if, as we saw in Acts, and if you go back to Acts 1, it becomes clear that Jesus instructed the apostles for a period no shorter than 40 days. Verse 3 of chapter 1, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. And yet, if you just read Luke, especially if you take that then to mean next, you might almost think that Jesus appeared the night of the resurrection, gave them this instruction, went out and ascended all in that one day. We know 40 days has to fit in here. Now, we're not sure exactly where to fit that in, but there's no reason it couldn't be between where we left off last week and this. In other words, the last clear connection of time, we know the disciples on the road to Emmaus were that same day, verse 13, that very day. And of course, that very day referencing verse 1 on the first day of the week, Resurrection Sunday or the first Easter. So the disciples are on the road to Emmaus that very day. They arrive at their place of lodging. They have a meal. It's evening time. Then that hour they arose, verse 33, and returned, getting in either late at night or possibly early the next morning. And then while they're still talking about this news, Jesus appeared to them. So I would assume all of that takes place in an unbroken narrative. But then here, beginning in verse 44, with and he said to them. And verse 50 as well would allow for time again. And he led them up. This happened and this also happened with no necessary relation to time. And somewhere in there, Luke is well aware there's 40 days. Um, So the timing, we do not know exactly when this took place. Um, So sometime in those 40 days, possibly beginning here, it's, it's even possible that what Luke refers to as Jesus opening their minds to understand the scriptures is a summary of the 40 days he spent teaching and instructing them. That's also a possibility as well. So timing, we do not know when exactly these things took place. But what, what is clear is what Jesus is about to say and do takes on an element of solemnity. It's serious. And the, the words he uses, these are my words that I spoke to you, echoes a similar preamble. It's the book of Deuteronomy. You listen to Deuteronomy 1.1. These are the words that Moses spoke to all of Israel. And what Jesus is in essence saying is, I've been saying this to you throughout my ministry and you didn't get it, but the, these are the words that I've spoken. When he's, he in essence says, what has transpired had to transpire. What is to come must also transpire. It is the fulfillment, the summation of scripture. And so it lends an element of solemnity and seriousness. What Jesus is about to say is very serious and weighty. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Notice that point of transition. Now there's a sense in which, of course, Jesus is with them. He's approximately in the room with them. But he's not with them like he was with them. During the the three, three and a half years in which Jesus traveled with the disciples, he was with them among them, humbled. Now he is glorified. Prior, he had emptied himself. He had veiled his glory. Now, by virtue of the resurrection, 
He has received the name that is above every name, honor and glory, and he is about to transition and and ascend to the right hand of the Father. And so even though he's in the room with them, and he'll be with them for 40 days teaching them, he is not with them as he was with them. And we're in a position in a period of transition when I was still with you. So we know a transition's occurring. That's why he's about to give this commission. Things are about to change. He will depart. The Comforter, the Holy Spirit, will come to them. And the mission will continue. And then we get his purpose. And it's emphatic that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The blank there, everything written of Christ must be be fulfilled. Literally, it is necessary. God keeps his word. He does not stutter. And God wrote in his word. And notice, notice the fullness of scripture. We have the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Um, this is even a broader uh, designation than what Jesus used on the road to Emmaus. Where he's simply, verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures. So he's grabbing the kit and caboodle, the entire Old Testament as we know it. And what Jesus is saying is throughout the entire Old Testament, there are writings about him. Predictions about him. They must be fulfilled. And three weeks ago, I think, we spent the entire morning just looking at some of those Messianic prophecies. If you weren't here, um, I'd encourage you to go back and look at that. The Old Testament is rich in its predictions of Christ. Absolutely rich. That's his purpose. That's what he's doing here. Finally, in other words, you're going to get it. These things had to occur. They must occur. They must be fulfilled. So that's fulfillment. Fulfillment. Then the next step is preparation. Now prior to this, the disciples have not really understood. We've been told repeatedly that they did not understand They did not grasp the meaning. This saying was hidden from them. Their eyes were blinded. But now Jesus will remedy that. In preparation, in a simple statement, verse 45, that is profound, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now this is in a series of openings in chapter 24. If you remember when the two disciples began walking with Jesus. In verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. But then, as Jesus taught to them from the scriptures, and then he broke bread in their presence, verse 31, their eyes were open. Same Greek word. But their eyes opening coincides with their understanding opening as they summarize themselves what Jesus did on the way with them. Luke describes it in verse 27 as beginning with Moses and all the prophets. He interpreted, he translated, he he brought across the meaning. But they describe it themselves in verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? So first, their eyes were open to the scriptures and then their eyes were open to him. But now... Jesus opens all of their eyes to the scriptures. Now, I'm not, we're not entirely sure what that involved. Was that simply a matter of his will? One moment they were blind, the next minute they see. As I said earlier, this could refer to the entire 40 days as Jesus taught them. We know that he taught them. In, in Acts chapter 1, verse 3, he presented himself 
alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. Um, and so he's, he's with them, and he's talking to them, he's teaching about the kingdom of God. And so whether or not this opening is in part through his instruction, whether it's supernatural, here's the point I want you to write in here. Understanding scripture is a gift of God. It's God's work. God opens eyes. God grants understanding and insight. In fact, keep your thumb here and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, it's possible that Jesus opening their minds to understand the scripture is the same thing John's gospel speaks about when he says he breathed on them the spirit. It's possible those refer to the same thing. I know, though, however, how it works for us. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, look at verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural person cannot, is not able to understand spiritual things. And the remedy for that for us is seen in verse 12. Now we have not, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So God has given us his spirit so that we might understand his word. Because understanding his word is a work and a gift of God. Um, The new birth is not, John tells us, based on willpower or descent from blood or the will of a man. But it's based on God's will. And God opens eyes. That's why when we evangelize, when we preach, when we, you'll hear me just put every Sunday morning praying that God would open eyes, that God would remove the veil that blinds, that God would change our hearts. Now, they're responsible for their blindness. Jesus rebukes them for it. Their own sinfulness, their own immaturity, their own misunderstanding of Scripture is responsible for why they do not understand. But the remedy for that is a sovereign work of God. In fact, turn a little further over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I see that explicitly made. Um, it's a bit of a detour, but given where we're going about evangelism and the Great Commission, I think it's worth going to. Paul understands himself as an evangelist. He proclaims Christ. He's a minister of the gospel, and yet he also understands that his work is not decisive in the salvation of sinners. And he begins to defend his ministry in chapter 4, that at times and in certain cities there is very little response. And he wants to make it clear it's not that he's being unfaithful and it's not that his gospel is inauthentic or lacking power. Look at verse 3. Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Now get this verse 4. Why do people perish? In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So the reason people perish, even though Paul is in their town preaching the gospel to them, is they they are presented Christ and the gospel, and there's this veil over their face. 
and they can make out some shape, but it seems to them some strange or ugly thing. We sang it this morning, show us Christ. And, and Luke wants us to understand, we've seen these bumbling disciples who've been given proof after proof, instruction after instruction, and they still aren't getting it. And they will be transformed, and they will be sent, and they will, according to the Pharisees, turn the world upside down. And the reason for that is not their ingenuity, not their wisdom, not their resolve, but God. There's two decisive equipments. We're going to look at the first one here. Where he prepares them for this ministry. The first is the opening of their eyes. The second is the Holy Spirit coming in Acts, which is why Jesus tells them to delay and wait in Jerusalem. So the problem for why people are perishing, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, is the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They're not seeing something beautiful. They're not seeing something glorious. How is that remedied? Verse 6. We'll, we'll make, get to verse 6 by way of verse 5. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ, who is Lord. So Paul's throwing Christ out in front of them by means of his proclamation. He's explaining his life and his death, his sufferings and his resurrection, his glory. And some people are uninterested because they're blinded. But verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness. Now, what's he referencing there? He's referencing Genesis chapter 1, where God, prompted by no one, in response to no one, for his own sovereign good pleasure, decided to say, let there be light. How does the problem of human blindness to the glory of the gospel, how is that resolved it's the same act of God. He said, let there be light in Genesis 1. And if you're a Christian sitting here, sometime in the past, God spoke light into your heart and the veil was removed and you saw Christ in his glory and you were saved. So understanding, seeing truly the scriptures, seeing the gospel rightly is a gift and a work of God. And the, the apostles will reason from Scripture. We'll see in Acts chapter 2, the apostle Paul, Peter, the apostle Peter, arguing for the death and resurrection of the Messiah from the Old Testament. Again, a result of God's enablement and God's opening of his eyes. Which gives us to point B here. This is, this is crucial. A right understanding of the Old Testament Scripture is needed to rightly understand and proclaim Christ. A right understanding of the Old Testament scripture is needed to rightly understand and proclaim Christ. Rather than unhitching from the Old Testament, Jesus thought the apostles needed to better understand it if they were going to accomplish the task that he gave them. He equips them for the proclamation of his death and resurrection by opening their eyes to understand the scripture. And at this moment in time, what is the scripture? It's what we know as the Old Testament. Interesting that. Proclaiming the new covenant gospel of grace through faith in Christ required their understanding of the Old Testament. Yeah, don't, don't unhitch. Understand. Study the Old Testament. Um, you, the, God's word is, is connected together inextricably. 
And Jesus prepares the apostles for their new covenant ministry through opening their eyes to understand the Old Testament. If you want to be a faithful evangelist, study the Old Testament. You want to be prepared to proclaim Christ, study the Bible. They're not disconnected things. Jesus is is giving them the tools they will need to accomplish the task that he gives them. So that's first fulfillment, then preparation, and now finally mission. Mission, verses 46 and 47. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, Jesus has already said in verse 44, these are my words. This is what I've been saying. The scriptures must be fulfilled in everything they say about me from the beginning to the end. Now he's going to summarize in three infinitive verbs what the scriptures say about him. The scriptures have a lot to say about the Christ, but if we want to boil it down to three things, he says them right here. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer. There's number one. On the third day, rise from the dead. There's number two. And the repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed. So briefly, let's look at the first two and we'll slow down for the third. And the reason for that is when we studied the Old Testament and the Messianic passages, we focus particularly on those passages describing the Christ's suffering and his subsequent resurrection. We've spent some time looking at it. It's that third one that Jesus adds that we will devote our time this morning to. But first, briefly, the Christ must suffer. The Christ must suffer. That's clearly seen in passages like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22. Let me just read to you briefly from Psalm 22. Jesus quoted this psalm on the cross. Uh, his father gave him a song to sing in his darkest hour of suffering. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. That You are holy and throned on the praises of Israel. And you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. And you they trusted and were not put to shame. And in contrast to our fathers, but I'm a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he is delighted in him. Oh, the Old Testament predicts the sufferings of the Christ. The, the disciples and the Jews of Jesus' day could only see what they wanted to see, the, the exalted Christ, the glorified Christ, the conquering Christ, the Christ of Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. And they, they didn't have a category for a suffering, humiliated, suffering servant. And yet the Old Testament's predict that. And Jesus makes that clear. One of the things that is necessary that had to be fulfilled, thus it stands written, the Christ must suffer. And that word suffer summarizes Jesus' entire passion. The entire uh, events from all of the suffering that occurred just through his life by virtue of being in this sin-cursed fallen world to the mock trials, the beatings, the floggings, the cross. And the ultimate suffering we saw was the wrath of God. Isaiah 53 makes that clear. It's the Lord who has crushed him. 
And, and why must the Christ suffer? Because he must bear the sin of his people. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced. Notice the specificity. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So the Christ must suffer, and he suffers not for his own sin, but for ours. And on the cross, he, he, he is a sacrifice. The entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament meant to prepare us for the understanding that our sin requires satisfaction, requires punishment. And Christ, in our stead, as our substitute, bears the wrath of God for our sin. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's Jesus' mission. He's summarizing the entire Old Testament teaching on the Messiah. And the first act of that summary is that Christ must suffer. He must suffer for his people. He must be a sacrifice and a substitute. Now, thankfully, it's not the end of the story. He doesn't just suffer. His sacrifice is complete and full. His payment is received and accepted, and he is raised on the third day. And the Old Testament predicted that as well. Even in Isaiah 53, we read about the burial of this one, right? Um, Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter like a sheep, that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked. So if you're making someone's grave, they are dead. Fair enough? So he's died, he's dead. With a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. And then, even though he's been dead and buried, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So this one who's been dead and buried is not done. He has days ahead of him, prosperity ahead of him. He shall see the result of his sacrifice and be satisfied. And we could look at other passages as well. Peter's going to cite the Psalms. You will not let your holy ones see decay. Now, this, the, the Old Testament predicts the Messiah's suffering on behalf of his people and his resurrection and exaltation. Now, those things we've looked at clearly a few weeks ago. But it's this third piece that Jesus adds that I want to look at now with what time we have remaining. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Now, literally, the Greek's word ordering is a little different. It makes the emphasis clear. First, it is necessary, it is written, that Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead and proclaimed in his name and then the message which is why I I worded point C here the way I did. A message must be proclaimed in his name. So the Christ must suffer, the Christ must rise, and a message must be proclaimed in his name. Now what's interesting here is this. 
Jesus, at this point, has already accomplished the first two of this three-part summary. He has suffered. He has died. He has borne the sins of his people. And he has been gloriously and wonderfully raised from the dead. So it's only this third must that is yet to be fulfilled. And Jesus himself in his own person will not be the one to fulfill it. This final summary of the mission of the Christ will largely be fulfilled by the church. Sure, Jesus himself appears to Paul on the Damascus Road, but aside from some rare exceptions, the overwhelming majority of people who hear this message will hear it from the church. And so Jesus is making clear, these things must be, they must take place, they are necessary. And this last one, This proclamation is being entrusted to these bumbling, faulty, flawed, weak disciples, which is why they're being equipped. This is the the seriousness of this moment. Jesus has been faithful to fulfill every bit of scripture, faithfully living out the mission that his father gave him, faithful at every point. And yet now this third piece, this proclamation, is being handed over to bumbling, frail, and weak people like you and me, which is why they need to be equipped. That's what's so amazing. So a message must be proclaimed. A message must be proclaimed, announced, heralded, Is another way of saying it. So this is then the great commission. What is the content then of this message? Now here's where you might find it surprising. Um, We spent a Sunday this uh, fall. Pastor Daniel preached for a second time a message on faith alone. Because we didn't record the first one. And so we heard not once but twice emphatically and hopefully many other Sundays that we are saved not by the things we do, not by our deeds, not by our works, but by faith in Christ. And we believe that. We've taught that. We've hammered that. Paul is emphatic on this point. Yet to me it's striking that when Luke summarizes the nature of the proclamation that will go out, that must go out, that the scriptures predict will go out, he does it without mentioning faith. That should strike you as a little odd. Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. You go look at the Great Commission in Matthew. Go, therefore, into all the world and make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have done, and lo, I am with you to the end of the age. No mention of faith. That should strike us potentially as a little odd. And we've got to look at this and say, okay, how does this square What's he saying? How how can the gospel proclamation be rightly summarized as a message of repentance and forgiveness? I think it can. I think Luke has accurately summarized. I don't think our Lord made a mistake. So what we've got to do is synthesize. We've got to synthesize verse 47 with the rest of Scripture, with, with Paul, with the book of Romans, with Galatians, with everything else we see. And that's what I want to take our time this morning doing. Because this is a solemn and sacred task. Jesus has perfectly fulfilled the first two imperatives. Christ suffered, and he did so perfectly, fully. Christ must rise on the third day. He has done that. 
And this is the part handed to the apostles and now down through the church to us, this proclamation, this announcement. And so it's really important to understand what it is we're to announce. And so Paul, I mean, Luke summarizes, well, he quotes Jesus and Jesus summarizes the message as repentance and forgiveness of sins. So let's try to work through this, how to, how to make sense of that. Now, first we've got to define our terms. I would define repentance as something along these lines, a heartfelt conviction of, sorrow for, renouncing of sin. It involves the mind, the affections, the will. You, you, you used to love your sin. You used to crave it, long for it, do whatever it took to get it. Now you feel differently about it. Now you purpose differently about it, and you think differently about it. Literally, the Greek word means afterthought or a change of mind. And so I'm going to argue, point one here, that repentance is united with faith. In one sense, speaking of repentance and speaking of faith are speaking of the same thing from different vantage points. I've I've used this, I know this is an oversimplification, but I've used this analogy before. Watch this. Watch Pastor Jeremy turn away from the north wall. Watch Pastor Jeremy turn towards the south wall. Which one did I do? Did I turn away from the north or did I turn towards the south? Yes. There you go. Yes. And I think that's how the New Testament treats the relationship of faith and repentance. There are times where the condition for salvation is repent, as it is here, as it was with John the Baptist. Go back to chapter 3 of Luke. John the Baptist came preaching, And his ministry is summarized in verse 3. He went into all the region around the Jordan, 3-3, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It sounds eerily familiar to us at the end of Luke. And in that case, this brackets the entire gospel. So John the Baptist came with this baptism. I don't think he's at odds with Jesus' message. I don't think it's at odds at all. Sometimes in the scriptures, they come together, repent and believe. We'll look at one of those examples in a minute. And other times, the command is simply to believe. People can wrestle with this because we like things simple. We like bumper sticker theology, and we want to make it just really simple. And yet the New Testament will speak of the conditions of salvation in, in a variety of ways, all meaning the same thing, and in that variety, shedding light and giving clarity as we synthesize them. So we, we talked about this a, f- a few months ago when I talked about we have to synthesize the Philippian jailer, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, and Jesus demands to renounce your mother and father, that they're not in conflict with each other. We have to understand them in harmony together. And likewise, we need to understand that the, Jesus himself summarizes the apostolic preaching of the gospel as a proclamation of repentance and forgiveness of sins. And we dare not disagree or want to qualify that. So, I'm going to argue that the New Testament lays out that repentance and faith are, in, are united. In one sense, they're, they're turning from something and turning to something. In fact, turn, um, turn to Acts chapter 2. It's clear that Peter understood this. So, Luke tells us Jesus' summary of the proclamation. And then in the very first proclamation of the gospel in the book of Acts, we see exactly that proclamation. 
They do wait. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They begin speaking other languages. A crowd gathers. Peter stands up and he speaks to them. The men are convicted and cut to the core. Pick it up in Acts 2.36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brother, what, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent. Be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now there's one of those gospel requirements that doesn't mention faith, just mentions repentance. This is the same book that in Acts 16 has the Philippian jailer. What must he do to be saved? Virtually identical question. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke is not contradicting himself. He is not speaking out of both sides of his mouth. He means the same thing by these two expressions. He means the same thing by these two expressions. Secondly, repentance, first, is united with faith. But second, repentance is not a work. Sometimes people trip up on this because we do want to emphasize with the Apostle Paul, with the New Testament, salvation is by faith alone, not of works. And this is where I find John the Baptist, if you go back to Luke 4, 3, most helpful in separating and distinguishing between repentance and the deeds that flow out as a result of it. Look at Luke 3, 7, and 8. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Now, that is a seeker-sensitive message right there. (laughs) You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That's right in sync with Jesus. The tree is known by its fruit. Of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good tree bears good fruit. The bad tree bears bad fruit. We've made a distinction between repentance and the actions and the words and the deeds that accompany it. Now, in case you're tempted to say, okay, that's John the Baptist, and he's not necessarily preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, dead, buried, and raised. The Apostle Paul adopts the same exact expression. If you'll turn to uh, Acts chapter 26. Because remember, this commissioning at the end of Luke is setting up what Jesus continues to do through the book of Acts. In Acts 26, the Apostle Paul is defending his ministry before King Agrippa. And he summarizes his conversion. He starts in, um, starting in verse 11. He, he's explaining what he's doing and what his ministry is about. Um, pick it up in verse 15. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and in those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Already that's the beginning of that turning from turning to. I'm sending you, Paul, to open their eyes that they can turn from darkness to light from the power of Satan to God. It'll get more explicit that they may receive forgiveness of sins 
and the place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. And here's that phrase that John the Baptist used, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Repentance is not a work. It's a state of the mind, the affections, and the will. It produces actions, undoubtedly, just as faith does. I think one helpful way of thinking of it is this. If it's one turning, if it's one action, turning from and turning to, repentance is focusing primarily on what the object you're turning from is, and faith is primarily looking at the object you're turning to. But there is no turning from sin without turning to something, and there is no turning to Jesus without turning from something. And again, Paul puts them here together. Both occur here, repentance and faith, as Paul summarizes his Mission and proclamation of the gospel. So repentance and faith are united. Repentance is not a work. Third, repentance is commanded. It's not optional. If you're still in Acts, turn over to 1730. Now there's one sense in which when we proclaim the gospel, we are inviting people. There's another sense when we proclaim the gospel, we're issuing the command of God. Acts 17.30, as Paul finishes up his sermon, Theopagus, verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. So sure, there's a gospel invitation and there's also a gospel command. The king of the universe commands you to lay down your arms, surrender, and entrust yourself to him. That's another valid way of looking at the gospel proclamation. Finally, repentance is necessary. Why stress this point? We want to make the gospel as appealing as possible. And telling someone to repent, to turn from their sin, to to turn from those things they've been worshiping up to this point is is certainly um, going to be a little harder on the ears than simply saying believe. And yet Jesus makes it clear, turn to, uh, to Luke 13. Turn to Luke 13. And in Luke 13, Jesus makes it clear that this is necessary. Remember, the Jews are telling him about these atrocities that have befallen some of them, and they're thinking, okay, these people must be worse sinners than, than us. These people on whom the tower fell, these people who Pilate mingled their blood with the sacrifices, they must be worse sinners. They must have done something really bad. And Jesus makes it clear we all deserve towers to fall on us. We all deserve these. All of us, by virtue of being sinners, are guilty. And what does he say not once but twice? Verse 3, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Verse 5, no, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So how do we synthesize this? 
there's a number of ways to speak of the gospel offer going out. We're justified by faith, by belief. Uh, John talks about receiving Jesus. And sometimes it's spoken of as repentance. Sometimes it's spoken of as faith. Sometimes Paul speaks of his repentance and faith. What matters is we mean the same thing when we speak. I'm not trying to get you to adopt some formula or some um, four-step outline. The danger is someone thinking they can come savingly to Christ while they still worship and love and serve their sin. That's the danger. There is no turning to Jesus without turning from something. And so we, we need to move on for time's sake, but... Bear in mind, Jesus summarizes the entire apostolic ministry in the book of Acts, the entire great commission for the church as a proclamation of a message, and that message is summarized by two points. In Luke, repentance and forgiveness of sins, connecting the two together. In fact, some of your manuscripts, you'll have a footnote at the bottom, say repentance for the forgiveness of sins, which is how John the Baptist worded it. We'll pick this up next week. The Great Commission and our mission to the nations is is worthy of our detailed attention and study. But I just want to leave with that challenge. Could this be an accurate summary of the message we proclaim, the message you share? We, We live in a day where we want to water things down. Evangelism can just become asking someone to come to church. That's a good thing to do. Asking someone to come to church is great. It's not evangelism. It's just being faithful. But if we are sharing the gospel, I just challenge you, could, could someone, could Jesus rightly summarize your proclamation of the gospel as a message of repentance and forgiveness? And we need to make room for these things alongside of other passages that we may feel much more comfortable with. Uh, the Bible has many ways of speaking of these things. This is the, the baton passed to the church. This is the charter given to us. We have the extreme privilege of finishing out as the Lord's body the work he began in the gospel by proclaiming this message. I'm going to call the worship team up for our closing song as we sing about God's kingdom coming and as we undertake that responsibility. Thank you.